Welcome to the book of Romans. Uh, we're in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's a, a pew Bible there in front of you, page 939. If you don't have a Bible at home, that pew Bible is yours. You're more than welcome to, to take that. It's our gift to you. We long for the Bible to be in the hands of, of people. Well, our text this morning, verses 16 and 17 may well be argued that these verses change the course of human history. Because these verses changed a man, and this man changed the world. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, who am I talking about, Will? Martin Luther. You know, Yvonne and I have been reading um, Roland Bainton's classic book on, on Luther especially like leading up to next year, 2017, which is the 500-year, uh, uh, whatever, celebration or anniversary of him nailing the theses on the door at Wittenberg. And so just each night before we go to bed, uh, she's preparing and I'm just, I'm just reading um, this book. It's a great, it's a great book. And uh, Luther... Um, we, we, just a couple of days ago, we were talking about uh, Luther transitioning from Erfurt, where he was a monk, to Wittenberg, where he was going to be a Bible teacher, going to be a Bible professor. And he was pretty scared of that, but Staupitz, his, his mentor, said, no, this would be good for you, why don't you go? And he just knew it would get him in the scriptures and would be a good thing. And, and so he started um, in 15, let's see, 15, 15, fall of 1515. He started teaching through the book of Romans. And so, whatever, 501 years ago, he began teaching through the book of Romans, and he came upon this phrase right here in our text, and wrestled with it, and wrestled with it. And here's what he said. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in my way except that one expression the justice of God. Now, when we read justice of God, he's talking about the righteousness of God. Okay, it's the same thing. You're right before God. You're just before God. Uh, he's talking about that, that phrase. It's in our, our, our Bibles. That one expression, the, the justice or the righteousness of God, because, Luther writes, I took it to mean that justice or righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. So he came upon this phrase, the righteousness of God. He said, yes, God is righteous. And because he is righteous, he must judge our unrighteousness. So how is it that that is good news? He said, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, and he has said, if ever a, a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I, is what he said. But he said, I was an impeccable monk, a blameless monk, pure, walking righteously. But he said, I knew that I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated him and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. So night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God, 
that is the righteousness of God, and this statement at the end of verse 17, the just shall live by his faith. Then he said, I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors of paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love and the passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And Martin Luther was changed and he changed the whole course of human history as he continued to think through about this this meaning that the righteous will live by faith. Which of course comes up in Galatians which after he's taught through Romans he taught Galatians next. Galatians 3 11 says a just shall live by faith. And you may be here this morning like Martin Luther. Oh, you may not be a monk wearing the the garb, but you may well be equally walking righteous like Luther was, praying and reading, attending services, attending church and small groups and Bible study, but you may have a, a troubled conscience. You may have this question that Martin Luther had, will God really be satisfied with my efforts Well, Roland Baton said that this reading of Romans was, for Luther, a Damascus Road experience in which Paul's life totally took a turn. And maybe today, through these words, God will make a total turn in your life. You'll be as if born again and you'll enter into the gates of paradise. And may you see today that your standing before God is not because of your religious righteousness, but it's only by God's grace and His, to use Luther's words, sheer mercy that you stand before Him. It's a matter of faith. The righteous shall live by faith. My message this morning is entitled, The Powerful Gospel. Because that's what Paul is talking about in our text today. He's talking about the power of the gospel to bring about salvation in our lives. I want to read our text this morning, and I do have it here on the overhead just so you might catch it, because we, we need to look at it carefully. But Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, as we approach this text, one of the things we need, first of all, is to be a grammar student. And notice that there are, there's one word used a couple times here in this text, which are like, it's like a linking word, which is key to understanding the, the, the text here. And, and that word is the word for. You see right there, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And it comes up again, for it is the power of God. Now, for salvation is different. Okay, that's, that's unto salvation. It's a different Greek word. It's a different meaning here. For, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the word for really separates these, these three. So you can even kind of separate it into three parts. And you can even translate that for because... 
Because that's what the four means. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's what for means. That's what because means. And we know that because is something before. Like, I like going to California because the weather is always nice in California. I need to go to the doctor because my knee is hurting me. I'm going to read this afternoon because I have a test tomorrow. I'm, I'm looking for a new job because things are slow at work and I might get laid off. That's how because work. It, it explains something that comes before. And so this text, as it begins with a because, begs the question, well, what comes before? So if we just slide this down a little bit, here we see the logic of the text this morning. I'm eager to preach the gospel, Paul says, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So these becauses are going to form the three points of my outline this morning. I want to take each of these in order. We're going to say why. Why are you eager to preach, Paul? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed? Because the power of God for salvation. And why is it the power of God? Or how is it the power of God? Because it's the righteousness of God that's been revealed. And these are my three points here this morning. We're going to look, first of all, why is Paul eager to preach? That's what he starts off, right? Because, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the question he's asking. So you go back to verse 15. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Now, we need to step back a little bit. We didn't have time last week to cover this, and I just want to cover some things here. But but Paul mentions how eager he is to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. It's key to our text. It's the key to your speaking the gospel and sharing the gospel with people is to be eager about it. You know, some people can have a, a drudgery about sharing the gospel. Oh, I got to do this, right? Oh, I got to bring up Jesus. I got to talk about it. But that doesn't work. But it's when you're like passion with it and you can't help but to speak about it. That's when the gospel really takes root and really helps. Like a, a youngster Who's going to go to Great America tomorrow? Do you have to say, um, Jimmy, um, can you set your alarm for six in the morning because we need you up and ready to go? What's going to happen? All right, I'm going to go. I'm ready. Right? Eager. That's what, what Paul describes. Now, in verse 15, do you, any, do you see anything odd about that verse? Let me just read it for you again. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, you, you, it might not be unusual to you, it might, might be normal, but it is odd for many people that, that Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel to believers. Now, many times people think about the gospel and they just think about, oh, that's the message that the unsaved need. That's the message that the unbelievers need, right? They, they need to hear the message of salvation and be saved from their sins, but Paul is saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, certainly there would be unbelievers there who need to hear the gospel, but I think he's got in mind believers who need to hear the gospel because we all need it. We all need to hear the gospel, new and fresh. We need to hear it again and again and again and again because the gospel isn't something that we hear once and believe and carry on with the rest of our, our lives. See, the gospel isn't like a... A chicken pox vaccination. 
where you are vaccinated as a young child and and you need to never worry about it again because the vaccination works throughout your whole life. Right? You never even think about it. That's not what the gospel is. Right? The gospel is not like your graduation from high school where you receive the diploma and put it, put it on yourself or display it on your wall or something and hardly ever think about it again. Oh, maybe sometimes you do. Oh, when did I graduate from high school again? Did I graduate from high school? And yet, it, it's just a past event that just happened that you don't, you don't worry about your tests anymore for high school. It's not like that. The gospel is more like marriage, where one point in your life you stand before a church or before a judge and you pledge your lifelong love to your spouse, and then what happens the rest of your life? You spend it learning about your spouse. And, and knowing about your spouse and sharing life together with your spouse and just growing together in a, a relationship together. The gospel's like that. Um, is that you come to faith in Christ and the gospel stays with you all the time. And, and you, you delve into it and you understand the mysteries of it. And you understand the greatness of your salvation. And you become ever more thankful to God for the gospel. And you realize that in order to walk rightly before God, you need to, you, you need to understand that gospel. We sang it today. He breaks the power of canceled sin. See, it's, it's the canceled sin that's been canceled in the gospel that still has power of us. But in the gospel, God is the one who breaks that power so we can walk in light of the gospel. We stand in the gospel presently as we think about our, our lives before God. It is we stand justified not by our works, but by his mercy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. See, we stand in the gospel, present reality, every day. It's where our hope is firmly rooted. In Colossians 2.6, Paul writes, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In, in other words, right? How did you receive Christ? You received Him by faith in the message of the gospel, so walk by faith in the message of the gospel. Never move on as we have received Christ, so we should walk in that faith. When those in Galatia began to depart, Paul rebuked him. He rebuked him strongly. He said, Galatians 3 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Right? In other words, right? You came to faith in Christ through faith. Now are you trying to perfect it through works? Right? You don't come to, to faith. God in one message, only to come to maturity in another message. You don't become a believer with a gospel and later become a disciple with some other sort of message. You know, people often mess this up. People talk with those who are not in Christ outside the church, say, come in, it's free grace, it's free grace. And then what happens when you get in the church? Laws and legalism, and this is all the rules that you need to do in order to be a Christian. It should be the other way around. No, the law is out there. Look at all the things you need to do in order to be good. And you can't do it. So come in through grace. And now we're in by grace. And we walk in that grace. And we glory in that grace. And we need that every day. It is so easy to move away from this gospel which we need to stand by. C.J. Mahaney says every day we face the temptation to move away from the gospel. And, and, and you can move away in several different ways. I, I think about... Moving the way of, of condemnation. 
right? Where, where you see your sin and you see how, how bad you are, like Luther was, and, and you see yourself before God and, and what you need at that moment. When you're a Christian, you're believing Christ, but there's just sin that's in your life and you hate it and you're struggling, but you're right there. What do you need? You need the gospel. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, He died for my sin. I, I have reason to look and hope that, that He made an end to all my sin, as we sang today. And, and when you're in the midst of, of condemnation, when you're in the midst of your sin, remind yourself of the gospel. That's what we sang today before the throne of God above. Right? Christ, you're there. You're my great high priest. You're interceding for me. Yes, here's my sin. I confess it. I hate it. And bring, bring me back. Oh God, I stand on this gospel. I'm trusting. Or you can go the other way. Not not just condemnation, but to legalism, where you've come to faith in Christ and you, God begins to work in your life a little bit and you begin to clean it up, if you will, quote-unquote, and you begin to, to know the Bible a bit more and, and what happens is you be, start to become proud. Look at all the things I got. Look at the books that I've read. Look at the things that I know. Look at how I pray. Look at the people I'm sharing with. <laughs> You're welcome, God. And it's at that moment you need the gospel that says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy. I'm not being made right with God through my righteousness. I'm being right with God through my mercy. And, and all my, my good works are, are just what God has prepared beforehand for me to walk in them. I, I'm saved by grace, just walking in obedience and trust, but it's not my obedience that saves. It's my, it's my faith. But God's grace. So wherever, wherever you go, just the gospel has this way of, of being our ballast, being a rudder that keeps us on the course. When we start going one way, it's going to pull us the other. And we start going this way, it's going to pull us this way. Whether it's condemnation or legalism, it's always going to pull us back. I could preach a whole sermon on verse 15. But we come now, verse 15 is the premise to verse 16. So why, why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? Well, the explanation is right there in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul knew that the gospel doesn't exactly have a great reputation in the world. And he knew that there's this natural tendency to feel ashamed of the gospel. In uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, he said, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, for those who are lost in sin, when they hear the gospel, they think it's foolish. Like, have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? Have you ever thought, okay, so, so try to get out of the Christian world, okay? Try to get out of church, okay? Try, try to be um, <clears throat> someone who has no exposure to the Bible or anything, and think about what we believe. We believe that a man was born 2,000 years ago of a virgin. We really believe that. We believe that the world, that, that this man was actually God. The very God who created the world with his word. He said it and it came to pass. That God became a man, became a baby of a virgin. We believe that this man was perfect. Lived a sinless life. Never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Commission or omission, right? He, 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 didn't, he didn't lack of doing anything. He did everything according to what he should have done. And how quickly we throw around, I'm not perfect. 
But this man was. We believe that he was perfect, never sinning even in the slightest degree. And by the way, all of these things are necessary to embrace the gospel. If you don't believe this, you don't believe he was born of a virgin, you just got a man. We need to have the hypostatic union between God and man. We need to have this God-man who's going to save us. If you believe he sinned, his sacrifice isn't, isn't efficacious for you. We also believe he performed stunning miracles, making blind people see, making lame people walk, restoring withered hands. Things that we have never seen personally. We've never seen miracles like what Jesus did. But we believe that they happened in Palestine 2,000 years ago. We believe that 2,000 years ago, he was crucified to a cross, lifted high, nailed to a cross, and died. It's a common criminal. And we believe that he was raised from the dead. He really died. No heartbeat, no pulse. No electrical brain activity. No blood flowing through his body. He was dead as nails. And we believe that this dead corpse raised from the dead. And we believe that he didn't die again. But that, that he was with his disciples and he lifted up into heaven and disappeared. And and just as he disappeared, we believe that he will come again to rule and reign as the sovereign over everybody and over all the world. And we believe that his, his death upon the cross was sufficient for our sins, was sufficient for the sins of those who believe. For the millions that came to faith on that one man All of our sins were paid for. He bore God's wrath for all of our sins. And that's a a big funnel. It's a lot of sin on one man in one moment of time or three hours or whatever when the sun was darkened. Still, that's going through sins pretty fast. And just to think about one human God-man death could atone for all of our sins. Sins. And we believe that we gain forgiveness simply by believing. No works needed. No sacrifice needed. No efforts. Simply faith and trust in Jesus. Now we believe those things. Now think about how, how does an unsaved person outside the church hear that they think that we're from another planet and we sort of are because our kingdom is not of this world but they think it to be foolish i think i was talking with a man this week brings his children to kids club and haven't seen him at all this this fall and so he was worried about kind of his kids and where they forgot stuff i said no 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 Your kids understand, they said it well, how do you get to heaven? By believing and trusting in Jesus, that your sins are forgiven through faith in Christ. And so I talked talked about that, this man, about what his children knew, and he couldn't change the subject quickly enough. Now, he doesn't understand the gospel, 
I don't think he understands why I would take time to invest in his children um, or other children in the neighbor. I think he sees the gospel as strange, but I think he's grateful enough that I'm at least um, pouring into the lives of his children that he's not like antagonistic to me because I'm helping his kids, if nothing else, just to read or to have a, a joy or, or a good time every Tuesday and Thursday night. Others aren't so kind. Others can laugh and pity us. I mean, you just go to a, a, to a, a college campus and just see the shame that's brought upon Christians. The wise of this age mock. They mock our morality as prudish and puritanical. They mock at our beliefs. I mean, all those beliefs I came through. I mean, how can a man be born of a virgin? How can a convicted criminal deliver you from your sins? How can there be only one way to God when there are so many people and so many religions? You are so arrogant to say that you are right and everybody else in the world is wrong. You are a closed-minded bigot. And so the accusations fly. You know, this is nothing new. It's gone on since the day of Christ. They laughed at Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself. They laughed at his followers. Threw them in prison. Without cause. Hated them. Beat them. For preaching Christ. Preaching this message. When Paul preached to the wise of Athens. He, they let him preach until he got to the resurrection. You can read it there. Acts 17 verse 31. And as soon as he preached the resurrection, they said, oh, you're talking about the resurrection for the dead. That can't be. And so they dismissed him. Now, some believed. Some mocked. Some were like, oh, maybe. That's always a response. Some believe. Some mock. Some say, maybe. But even after that, in the early church, people laughed at the followers of Christ. I'm not sure. Have you ever seen this before? Have you seen this before? Anyone? Yes. Good, Dallas. What is it? The cartoon of the early first or second century that shows Jesus hanging on the cross with the Yeah, there's called the Alexamenos Graffito, which is like Alec, the Alexamenos Graffiti. 200 AD. Very good. And here you go. If you trace the trace the drawing, you kind of kind of see this is sort of uh, what it is. It's it's modern. It's ancient graffiti. They didn't have spray paint, um, but they could etch in plaster. This was etched in plaster of a on a wall in Rome, which is now preserved in a, a Roman museum. And uh, it, it's an image of a young man worshiping a crucified donkey-headed figure. And the Greek inscription. Read something like this. Alexamenos worships his God. So it was mocking this Christian named Alexamenos. You might mock him for his name, if anything else, right? But they're mocking him for his worship. This is how the world looks at our gospel. Your God is a jackass, is what they say. That's the mocking that comes. And when we think what the world thinks, can you see how it is easy to be embarrassed or ashamed? So the great commentator C.E.B. Cranfield says it this way, Paul's sober recognition of the fact that the gospel is something by which, by the very nature of the case, Christians will in this world be tempted to be ashamed. Being ashamed of the gospel is a temptation. 
I think it was a temptation of Paul. But I think he boldly says, hey, I'm not, I've overcome that temptation. Uh, Paul knew the temptation because he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You know, it's a shameful thing to associate yourself with a criminal. And, and as Paul was there in prison in Rome, he says, Timothy, you don't, I'm a prisoner, but don't be ashamed of me. This is, this is what we deserve. This is, our, our Lord was crucified. How shall we be any different? Colossians 1.24, we are filling up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Not that the sufferings of Christ was, was in any way not efficacious for our, our, our sins, but rather that the world must inflict its harm and its shame upon us because that's what our Christ and our Lord was called to. We're called to turn the other cheek. We're called to be abused. We are called to take the road of Christ. That's why we're different than Muslims. Who they would see something like this, they would not allow that to be shown in any sort of uh, museum that they have. If that was a caricature of Muhammad, they would take that thing down and destroy it because Islam is an honor religion. It's all about the honor. Whereas our religion, we follow a crucified Savior. It's a religion of suffering. But it is a religion with power, the powerful gospel. But it's shameful to associate yourself with a criminal. Just ask any boy whose father's in jail. We've had some kids at Kids Club whose father's in jail. I've asked about their dad. They say he's in jail. It's like, hmm. You can tell the hurt that the kids have. It's not something old highly. But shame is, is inherent in the gospel. It says in Hebrews 12, too, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame See, it wasn't so much the pain of the cross that was difficult for Jesus. It was the shame of the cross, being shamed of my men and being ultimately shamed and abandoned by God. See, when Jesus was stripped of his clothes and crucified with other criminals, as a criminal, it's shameful. But he endured the cross for us to secure our salvation. That doesn't negate the gospel message that appears foolish to the world, but it merely says that it's it's a source for shame, can easily be. And I just, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of this message that sounds so foolish to the world? Or can you say like Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And, and this is important, not to be ashamed of Christ, as Phil read for us, Mark eight thirty eight. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You're ashamed of Jesus before men? When Jesus comes back, he'll be ashamed of you. Return the favor. How important it is. Just say, no, I'm, I'm standing for Jesus. I'm standing for everything he represents. Death, burial, resurrection. Paul wasn't ashamed. You say, you say why wasn't Paul ashamed? I'm glad you asked because Paul answers that question. Right? Why is Paul not ashamed? Second half of verse 16. Here it is. For... Or because, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now this message of the cross may sound foolish to the world, but let me tell you, it is a powerful, powerful message. It's able to turn drunkards into sober-minded, responsible people. It's able to turn the sexually immoral into chaste, pure lovers of Christ. 
It's able to change the simple-minded into wise, seasoned people. It's able to give joy to the depressed and hope to the hopeless. And to give strength for the trials of life. It's able to sustain us until that final day. That is the power of the Gospel. It's able to transform us. Right, We're new creatures in Christ. We're, we're created new. We're different. It's, it, 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 it brings us to repentance as we turn away from our old things and we, we live our new life and it gives us the power to accomplish that. That's how powerful the, the gospel is. It has the power to, to transform. I remember as a kid growing up loving to listen to Unshackled. You parents remember Unshackled? Anybody under 17 remember Unshackled? You do. How do you listen? On the internet? Oh, you guys, oh, good, good, good. Unshackled, I loved listening to that when I was a kid. Right? Talked about these guys and whatever, gangs and bad stuff and been involved. And then they got someone who's sharing the gospel and they come to church a little bit, convicted, and they go back in. And then finally, right, they change. And then the guy comes on and says, Hi, I'm Michael. I was in that story and God has changed my life. Like all these true stories, like, yes, that's the power of the gospel to transform. Uh, Psalm 107 speaks of the, the power of the gospel to transform. Uh, just people, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, giving thanks to God, where these people in desert wastes and they were, they were, were gone and prisoners and afflicted and, and drifted, but, but God brought them back when they cried for help and God redeemed them and saved them. There's a power to transform. But the gospel, catch this, has the power to sustain. It sustains people to the end of their lives. And I think that's primary focus here, verse 16, because of verse 15. He's eager to preach the gospel. He's not ashamed because the gospel's powerful to bring us to salvation. It's powerful for salvation. And we often think of this, right, only in terms of transformation rather than in terms of sustaining Right? We just think that the gospel is just, that's just good for changing people from, from, from sin to righteousness. But no, there's something else. The gospel is able to sustain us. Because I think that if you read for salvation as final salvation, you'll see what he's talking about. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to bring us to final salvation to everyone who believes who keeps on believing to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the, the reason why I say this is because of verse 15. He's preaching to the church. He's preaching the gospel to save people. He says, I want to preach the gospel to you because I know that's the very thing that's going to keep you saved, if you will. That's the very thing that's going to keep you, preserve you, until final salvation is to continue to hear the gospel. So you say, Steve, that sounds far-fetched. Well, look at chapter 5, verse 9. Look at how salvation is used in that context. Chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So, we, we, we're justified by His blood. That's where we are today, right? We believe in Jesus. His blood justifies us, makes us righteous before God because His blood paid the penalty for our sin. That's now, but there's something else that awaits that much more than justification shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's a future salvation. When God's wrath, it's not going to come upon us when we are fully saved and fully into His presence. Again in verse 10. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That is right. By, by the death of Jesus, we're reconciled to God. We were alienated, estranged from him, but now we're friends with him. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's something that we haven't quite experienced yet. It's just full salvation by the life of Jesus. The death brought us salvation here, but the life when he comes back is going to bring us ultimately to be saved. There's an ultimate salvation he's talking about here. Or chapter 13 uses it in the, the same way. Chapter 13, verse 11 he says, uh, the first half of the verse, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In other words, we first believed, but salvation wasn't there. But we're, we're, we're nearer now to salvation than we were when we first believed. So there's a, there's a sense even in the Bible where we're, we're believing. And, and the Bible does talk about, right, we are saved but there is this future aspect to salvation. I remember when in seminary taking a course in soteriology, salvation. It says we, we have been saved. We are saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. That's, the Bible uses different tenses for salvation all the time. And I think that the best way to read this in Romans 1.16 is that this salvation, it's the, it's the gospel that's going to keep us for this ultimate salvation for those of us who keep believing. This future salvation, there's a sustaining power of the gospel. That's why you always need to hear the gospel so that you don't, you don't drift and fall into despair. You don't drift and fall into legalism, but it's the gospel that's going to keep you and sustain you and give you that, that hope. One commentator said this, the gospel is God's instrument not only to make us Christian in the first place, but to also keep us Christian in the end. It's the priority of the gospel. It's where Romans, we read it, we love Romans because it speaks so much about the gospel into our lives and stirs us so much. Well, in recent days, I've, I've had an opportunity to, to see this. Um, been talking a little bit with uh, Clark Richardson from Pastor of a Crossway chaplain Fox Valley, and uh, he told me the news of friends of ours, Greg and Sally Carlson. I don't think any of you know these folks, um, but we first know these folks when we first married, maybe 20-some-odd years ago, and have mixed with them a little bit. Uh, Clark sent this email. I'll just let it speak for itself. I wanted to ask you to pray for a specific couple here at Crossway, Greg and Sally Carlson. Greg's a deacon and deeply embedded into the life and DNA of Crossway. Uh, they are a choice brother and sister who live their lives passionately for the kingdom. Two weeks ago, Sally was quite suddenly diagnosed with a brain tumor that's now been successfully removed. However, it is glioblastoma. Brian, glioblastoma. Whatever. He, he says is the most deadly form of brain cancer known to medicine. It will return apart from miraculous work of God. It will take her life in the flesh here on earth. The prognosis with all the most aggressive and painful treatments really not substantially better than no treatment at all. They decided to, in their own words, enjoy life and make much of Jesus through all that God has in store. Their testimony of grace is amazing, but one that you'd expect from people whom God has truly graced with eternal perspective and hope in His Son. I said, just, just pray for them. And uh, here, so what is it that 
that Greg and Sally need at this moment. They need the gospel. They need the gospel to help stay true until the end. In fact, uh, here's a, a Facebook post from Sally. She said this. She quotes Spurgeon first. And think about Spurgeon and what he's saying about what I'm saying about the gospel and Christians. Believer, do you not remember that rapturous day when you first realized pardon through Jesus, the sin bearer? Can you not make glad confession and say, My soul recalls her day of deliverance with delight. Laden with guilt and full of tears, I saw my Savior as my substitute, and now I laid my hand upon him. Oh, how timely at first, but courage grew and confidence was confirmed until I leaned my soul entirely upon him, and now it's my unceasing joy to know that my sins are no longer imputed to me, but laid on him, and like the debts of the wounded traveler, Jesus, like the good Samaritan, has said of all his future sinfulness, set that to my account. So Sally starts his Facebook post by reminding her and blind, reminding all the believers of the God. And doesn't that minister to your soul? To say, remember that day when you're saved, when your sins were forgiven? And think now of, of what joy it is that your sins are there. And, and like the, the good Samaritan who said, whatever, whatever, whatever you, you pay, whatever you need, just charge it to my account. That's what Christ has done. And there's a way that it just ministers to our, to our body and our soul that's going to to stir us up. And Sally continues, Dear ones, I'm recovering very quickly from my surgery, feeling stronger every day. Praise God. I thank all of you for your love, displayed in so many ways, and most special to me are your prayers on my behalf. The body of Christ is such a beautiful thing as it has no boundaries. God is teaching me to surrender in a remarkable way. God is in control for His glory and my good. The Lord has used this trial to cause me to cling tighter to Him and hold more loosely to the things of the world. My love for Jesus, my Savior, is growing. He's more precious to me with each new day. He has ministered to me in the depth of my soul and has given me such peace. That's not to say I haven't had my moments, but He's been faithful to bring me back to solid ground. When I am weak, He is my strength. She quotes from 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Right, My grace is sufficient for you from our powers perfected in weakness. Philippians four nineteen. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And, and I trust you see what, what she's doing. She's just entrusting herself to God and trusting that she's believing the gospel, that her sins are forgiven and that he is worthy and just embracing him in love and delight. She says, if he so chooses to heal me based on the path we're on now, on now praise him. If God in his unmeasurable love decides to take me home, then I will still praise him. It's the gospel. It says, God, it's all yours. Well, I know they need the gospel is what they need. And Clark needs to faithfully be preaching the gospel and reminding them of the gospel. And that's what's going to help. Not the condemnation of the law, not do this, do that, but Jesus has saved you and he is saving you and he will save you. Trust him. Well, here's some more friends. Some of you know these friends. I know you guys do. Uh, the, The Weebies do. Uh, Anouk and Jeremy Scott. This was their happier days, and this was their day on Wednesday. Again, I'll, I'll let Facebook tell the story. This morning's visit to the ER revealed that Anouk has a tumor the size of an apple in her colon. She's in surgery right now, so I type this. One of the first things she said after finding out is that tumor was an expression, uh, found out about the tumor was an expression that God would use this to bring people to himself. That's her heart and her prayer. When she got out of surgery, it was Thursday of this week, 
2.30 in the morning. She's tired. She doesn't want to, to see people. Here's the update. The colon on both sides was so bloated it had started to tear but not completely torn, so they stitched up to help, help it heal. The tumor had grown into the uterus and left ovaries, so they removed those as well as the portion of the colon affected. The surgeon didn't want to risk reattaching the colon. Delayed time to heal, so she has an ostomy bag. And while we can't be for sure, the doctor does believe the tumor was malignant. We will know for sure when lymph node testing comes back sometime next week. When I asked if he thought the cancer, if indeed it was malignant, was contained to the tumor, he said he wasn't sure, but lymph node testing would tell us that. But he didn't see any other tumors while he was in there. A lot to process, he says, as I do, and I'm sure I will write more. But for the time being, we are confident that God is good and that he is sovereign. There's trusting in the goodness of God. And then Anuk wrote yesterday on Facebook, Lessons I'm Learning. First, when you're praying for someone and really do it, it may not seem like you're doing enough, but to the person hearing, I'm praying for you, it's a huge blessing. Never discount the power and encouragement that prayer brings. Your prayers have helped lift my burden. She says, I'm seeing 2 Corinthians 1 in action. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fathers of mercy and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. People who have been through similar trials on bed rest in the hospital are being such a blessing to me without overwhelming advice or information. They're reaching out with the comfort they've received. Thank you. And I'm I'm skipping a lot, but she says, P.S. God's grace and peace that surpasses all understanding is truly enough. Even we don't understand. I see it so clearly this time. So my question is, what's going to keep Anuk and what's going to keep Jeremy through this trial? It's the gospel. That's why Paul was eager to preach the gospel. That's why I'm eager to preach the gospel, to tell you of sins forgiven in Jesus. There is joy and satisfaction there, and there is rest when you come to your final days. Because we're all coming to our our final days. And when we do, may we be like John Newton, who said this in his dying, his last days, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly, that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. What, what's, he's dying. He doesn't remember much. His mind is going. But what does he remember? It's the gospel he remembers. I'm a sinner. Christ's a great Savior. And that was helpful to, to keep him going. The, the, the gospel's powerful to keep until the day of salvation for all who believe. And in fact, just the... Inclusivity. I mean, just, Paul speaks this right to everyone who believes. Right? This isn't just a uh, an isolated. No, it's only to right people in Rockford or, or people in North America. Or it's to Jews and it's to Greek. It's to everyone who believes. But you got to see it's to Jew first. Our, our religion came from the Jews. The Messiah was promised to the Jews. He came to save them. But his salvation was so wonderful that it has come straight forward to us. We're going to talk in Romans 11 about how the tree, the olive tree was growing up and God lopped off some of those branches to bring the Gentiles to bring us right into the tree. So do you believe this salvation? It's come to us here in Lust Park, here in Rockford, Beloit, Janesville, wherever you're from. Are you trusting in the work of Christ? You say, well, what's that work? Well, very quickly, we're going to get on to verse 17. How is the gospel powerful? 
That's what he says, right? It's the power of God. Well, how is it powerful? Here's how it's powerful. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or more literally, from faith to faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It just means that it's, it's, all, it's all of faith. It's coming to us, God's righteousness, all of faith. <clears throat> when we get to chapter 4, Paul's going to talk about how Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham, he was a sinner, but in believing and trusting God, in expressing his faith to God, God in turn looked down upon Abraham and says, I'm going to take that faith and I'm going to exchange that for righteousness. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the righteousness of God that comes revealed from faith. To faith is a better literal translation of that. Or as your ESV note there says, faith from beginning to end. It's just faith through and through. It's always about faith. It's not about works. It's all about faith. And that's the good news that God isn't demanding perfect righteousness of us to absolve our guilt. He's giving us His righteousness. And that is powerful that God can give us His righteousness. I mean, you can't give your righteousness to anybody. But God gives His righteousness to us. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's, that's the gospel. Is that, is that all of faith from first to last, His righteousness has become ours. And indeed, that's how the righteous live, right? The righteous shall live by faith. Repeated in Galatians, repeated in Hebrews, to quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It's in the context of, of things not going well, but the righteous man just trusts and lives in God. And that is powerful because it brings us sinful human beings up to God's standard of righteousness. I mean, if you understood how holy God is and, and the fact that He gives us such righteousness that brings us up to His level so He sees no guilt in us through faith, through Christ and His sacrifice on the cross, you say, that's power. It's more powerful than any 22 megaton nuclear bomb. This is power. It's God's righteousness. Psalm 130, verse 4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There's none of us who could stand. But through faith, we can stand. Because He takes those iniquities, wipes them out, throws them into the depths of the ocean, casts them as far as east as from west, gives us the righteousness of Christ. Now, Paul's going to explain this further in Romans chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Okay? The righteousness of God, not through the law of the things we do, but the righteousness of God through faith. And that whole paragraph, which um, many have called the most important paragraph in all the Bible. I'll quote some of those quotes when we get to that paragraph. Chapter 3, 21 through 26. But it explains how God's righteousness can come to us by faith and how God can be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Like, like solves all the Old Testament problems. Like David, how was he forgiven if Christ hadn't come yet? Well, it solves all those problems, but those will be for a later day. It just shows his power. Well, I began my message with Luther. I want to end my message with Luther. After that quote where he talked about entering into paradise, here's the very next thing he said. He said, I just... Read from here, see if I can find it. It's on page. Over here. 
He says this. That passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. That is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly friendly heart in which there's no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. Now, the anger of God is going to come next week as we get to chapter 1, verse 18. Okay? And the anger of God is against the unbelieving. But if you're believing, you're not facing the wrath and anger of God. You're facing the love of God, the fatherly love and kindness of God. There is the gospel. There is the power of gospel. And may it change your life and may it change the lives of those around you. So change Luther's life and change the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I would pray that we at Rock Valley Bible Church would cling to the gospel in every way. God, there would be our hope and our treasure and our, our joy and that we would realize that we never graduate from the gospel course. God, but that that message of canceled sin, of, of sins forgiven and nailed to the cross, that message of pardon and free grace, mercy there was great and grace was free. Father, I pray that that might stir our hearts. I pray that we as a corporate body might see how that gospel message sanctifies us and purifies us and gives us a holy delight and passion to live for you. We do pray for these couples. I pray for Greg and Sally Carlson. God, dear friends, Lord, I, I pray that they really might rest and trust in the gospel of Christ. They really have, have one hope, and that's in you and your goodness and your grace. Um, Father, we would pray for healing if you delight, God, and yet we're realistic. And we would pray that they might live faithfully until that final day. God, trusting you, pray for Greg. You give him great love and care for Sally in these days, however long they have. We also pray for Anouk and Jeremy. Father, just that diagnosis is, is a lot more tentative. And Lord, just even as, as Jeremy is going to Southern Seminary with me, we've traveled down together, we have classes together. Lord, I pray that you would help him and support him. And I, I pray, God, your grace upon that family. God, that there might be great great joy and happiness there as he pastors a church in uh, Wisconsin. God, help the church family to, to gather around them and to help them and to encourage them and nurture them and provide for them. God, may they put their faith on display. And even as Anuk said, may people come to faith, God, through this illness. And we pray your mercy upon them. We pray the gospel would be real to them. And I pray... God, lastly, for all of us, the whole thrust of Romans is to encourage us that we would be eager to preach the gospel. Father, I pray that just even hearing the gospel today would so stir our hearts that we would would go out and speak with others of the wondrous grace that you've given to us in Christ. Give us opportunities, O God, this week. And God, may we be faithful even to share those opportunities with others to realize how faithful you are and in providing opportunities and then giving us the courage to overcome the shame of the gospel, the, the probable rejection that will come. God, to speak forth you and your name and the forgiveness and hope that's in Christ. 
So, Father, be our help this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.